Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Next Track. Thanks for giving us a listen. We're going to be talking about audio myths and superstitions in just a little bit. But first, I want to take a moment to welcome back Andy Doe, who's a digital music consultant, works with record labels, helps make them big and strong. Andy, it's great to have you back again with us on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing we wanted to talk about this week is classical music and playlists. Um, I spotted something a few days ago and wrote about it on my website about a company called Unclassified that makes classical music playlists. They're a subsidiary of Naxos Music Group. Naxos is a large, I guess they're still an independent label. They create their own recordings and they distribute a lot of other ones. And they've just been added to Apple Music. And there are a total of 11 playlists that they've released on Apple Music with things like classical music for study or serenity now or sounds without boundaries and it just made me realize how much classical music just doesn't work with playlists you just how do you make a playlist for classical music that had that respects the music in any way i think this is an interesting question because of course there are there are lots of different people who might want to hear some classical music on a on a streaming service or for that matter discover classical music through a download service and there's always going to be some demand to create playlists to satisfy that audience. It's really easy to see how this looks like dumbing down because all you can see in playlists is one track of this, one track of this, one track of this. And it's, it's not a good way to present works. It's not a good way to curate a selection of classical music with information and context in a way that it's going to be understandable to someone who knows a lot about this. But if what you want is to discover some classical music, if what you want is to listen to a bit of classical music and you don't really know what you're doing, then playlists are quite a good discovery tool. And it's just not for serious listening. I think that's, that, that's my apology for it. But who do you think actually listens to a classical playlist? I mean, they, a lot of these record labels, and I've seen this on Spotify, they try to sell these classical music playlists for studying as if the only way you can study is to listen to something calm like Mozart or Haydn or something like that. I, I've always done my best studying listen, listening to The Grateful Dead or Miles Davis or something that, with energy. I think even I have succumbed to the playlist that say music for studying just to put something because I know what it's going to be. I mean, I'm not studying, obviously. I don't take it literally. But I mean, it's I know it's going to be I know it's going to be Moonlight Sonata quality stuff. And, and that's what I want to hear for 45 minutes. And I realize that these are disembodied works and, and that's OK. I mean, because I can seriously go back and do some critical listening to any of these things later. I, I'm not the most conscientious and, and diehard fan of classical music, but I have my favorites and I have things that I like and I, I, I appreciate it. So when I see a, 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 classic, a pseudo-classical playlist called Serenity Now, I'm going to figure, well, it's going to be nice, quiet background music. Why not? But I totally agree. There's really no way to get a classical musical education by listening to playlists of classical music from the Apple Music Store. It's just not going to happen. Right. And in any case, a playlisting service like this is a cynical commercial play to generate money by taking control of the curation element of these stores. And, you know, this playlisting service is Naxos's version of this. Um, Warner Music just bought X5 Music Group, which is effectively at this point a, a playlisting service on streaming services. 
so that they would control that element of curation. And these things exist not because there's a huge public clamouring for them, but because the labels understand that this is a way to have some control over what people are listening to. And on terrestrial radio, you listen to Classic FM. On a streaming service, you listen to this. You know, this seems to me to be... It fits into the category of, of something that I characterize as the classical music square peg trying to fit into the pop music round hole. Classical music always seems to adopt these the, the pop music accoutrements, but they never work. And I've often wondered why classical music isn't the basis for the way things are, rather than putting itself in situations that don't best serve the genre. Well, in a way, classical music is the basis for the way things are done. It's just that we have particular additional requirements which we would love to see for classical music, just as just as you do for other genres of music. It's just that when we don't get them for classical music, we think that this is some classical specific bigotry. When in fact, you know, there's no there's no map in the browse function of a music store that would help world music fans. There's 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 no indicator to tell you whether a jazz track is real jazz or smooth jazz, so that you keep accidentally getting smooth jazz on your ears when you're looking for proper jazz. And and these are these are features that would really help people in, in other genres. We just tend to tend to think that we're being hugely victimized in the in the world of classical music. And if if you can understand white privilege, you can understand uh, classical music's victimization <laughs> complex. Well, just, I hope it's not that serious of a social issue. Ju just to close this discussion, um, one of these playlists is called Trance Classical. Now, I can understand, uh, as Doug said, a classical playlist, it's going to be mellow and all that. But this one, it's, it's sort of a mashup of contemporary music with traditional instruments. A lot of these Icelandic composers, movie soundtracks... But there is a track from Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music. Now, there's oh. no way in the world you're going to justify putting that into a classical music playlist. That does. That, that seems like a strange choice to me. But it does make Serenity Now sound pretty good. <laughs> so we invited Andy on the show this week to talk about audio myths and superstitions. If you're involved in audio at all, if you have friends who are audiophiles or who are interested in high-end equipment, you've heard all sorts of myths and superstitions and things that you have to do to make everything sound better. Let's start with cables. If there's one aspect of the audio obsession that seems incredibly egregious, it's the way that a cable can cost $100. This could be a speaker cable, USB cable, or an Ethernet cable. Andy, why do cables cost so much? I think it's pretty silly, but I, I think before we can properly talk about cables, we have to understand how it is that, that cables work. They're conductors that carry the signals, but they also work like long aerials. They pick up interference. And the big factors in the amount of interference that a cable will pick up is uh, the length of the cable, the power of the signal going through the cable, because loud music traveling through a cable doesn't need very much amplification, whereas if very quiet signal is going to be amplified, and when you amplify that quiet signal, you're also going to amplify the noise. Uh, then you have the extent to which the cable is electrically shielded, and you have the amount of interference in the room. So if your cable is running in a big coil past a transformer, it's likely that some kind of hum is going to get inducted in that cable. Are you saying that all cables need to be shielded then? Some cables work better if they are shielded. It depends upon the length of the cable, the power of the signal, the uh, amount of interference that the cable is going to experience. But certainly you do not need to shield your mains cables because they are short. They carry a, 
very powerful signal which is not amplified and it's also worth remembering that the mains cable all of the way back to the power station is not shielded so the last three feet's not going to make any difference yeah that's one thing i find that that people don't really think about is that they're in telecoms, the, the the expression uses the last mile. It's the bit between the the local exchange and your house. And there's a hundred, five hundred miles of cabling between that last mile and wherever everything's originating. And and if you're listening, let's say that you want to make sure that your mains cable is perfect to listen to music that's streaming from Apple Music or Spotify in another country. So you've got all this distance of cable that's being how would we say degraded by all these external influences but you are protecting those last three feet <laughs> well except of course that the sound isn't even traveling through the mains cable so whatever you do to your mains cable is is going to marginally affect the total power available to your to your device which is it's not going to be helpful but having 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 explained like the factors affecting the performance of a cable, it is worth considering that expensive audio cables do not seem to be at all designed with these factors in mind. They're designed with other magical physical properties in mind. And, and so I would be deeply suspicious of any expensive looking cable. Uh, we, we just simply, when we're making a record, we don't use fancy cables in recording studios. I can attest to that. I've, I've built recording suites and recording booths at radio stations. I've done wiring at recording studios, usually doing the grunt work of rewiring patch bays and things like that. And let me tell you, there was never any consideration for magical properties. No. It is fairly thick though, the cable. Um, I, I went to a recording session that Andy was managing a little more than a year ago, and he pointed out all of these rolls of cable, I guess it was quarter inch, half inch cable that was running from the microphones back to the mixing equipment. Um, we were in one end of a church and the mixing equipment was in the vestry at the other end. Um, so it was what, about 50 meters of cable and there were 30 microphones. There were, there were 48 microphones. <laughs> um, and if each one of them traveled through 50 meters of microphone, the microphone cable, you're looking at miles and miles of cable. But the reason that that cable is thick is because the plastic on the outside is very, very strong because these cables are getting plugged in, they're getting rolled up, they're getting put in a van, they're getting rolled out again. All the time. All the time. And if you were taking your hi-fi apart, every day and putting it in a van and taking it somewhere and setting it up again, then you too would want very, very sturdy cables. So that's that's one big difference between uh, the cables used to record and the cables used in a hi-fi. There are differences between the cables we use on recording gear and the cables people use at home. Um, to, to reduce the quantity of interference, we use balanced cables, and this is to connect a microphone up to, up to an amplifier that could be a very long way away. It's carrying a very quiet signal. Uh, what the balanced cable does is it has a, a positive and a negative version of the signal, and the signal is calculated as the difference between those. And the advantage of this system is that if you run this past a, a moving magnet, an electric motor, or something that will... Uh, something that will induce a current in the cable, that current that's induced in it will not change the difference between those two signals. And so the balanced cable cancels out inductive interference in the, in the cable. And you could use this system on a, 
on a home hi-fi, but they, they never have the connectors because the cable runs are not long enough. The other thing that's different about professional audio interconnects is that the, the volume, the power of the signal is generally, is generally quite a bit louder. And that is something that if you really wanted to improve the quality of a hi-fi system, you could, you could operate on that higher pro standard. Is the balance cable that you describe, is that what uses an XLR connector? That's right. It has to have a three-pin plug because you have the neutral, the positive signal and the negative signal. Right. And I've seen this in a couple of home audio devices. I mean, a couple at my price range. I know it exists in much more expensive ones. So when hi-fi magazines or, or websites review cables and any other audio device, the language they often use is creative, to say the least. What's all this about? Well, Kirk, I think you've, you've written on your blog more about this than, than anyone else I've, I've seen. And You've, you've nailed it many times. This has very, very little to do with the laws of physics. I think it has a lot to do with who is advertising in hi-fi magazines and where their profit margins lie. And, and a lot of this writing seems to be based in the idea that cables can somehow add detail to a, to a signal. And that is simply, plainly, and if you think about it, pretty obviously not true. All that can happen in a cable is interference can be added or signal can be lost. Those are the only two things that can happen in your cable. So, so you're saying that, let's, let's use uh, an example, if the sound is at a level of 100 being perfect, that it can't go to 105 because of a better cable, but it can go down to 90 or 80 because of interference. Yeah, but it's pretty unlikely to go down very far because it didn't go down very far when we ran all 50 microphones, very quiet signal through 50 meters of cable each past the central heating pump and all this other stuff on the way to making the record. Like the, the last three feet of wire in this is not going to make any difference in just the same way as the, the power cable is, is not going to make any difference to electricity that's traveled through awful wires all of the way from the power station. So all these reviews I've seen of stereo stands or speaker stands and things like that, they're just really magical. Well, stands are an interesting one. There is a plausible mechanism by which a speaker can have an effect or be affected by the things it's touching because it's a moving object. I'm not talking about speaker stands. I'm talking about span stands where you put your amplifier, your CD player, your DAC and all that. Oh, no, that's bollocks. I've seen reviews Wait. that those stands give more soundscape and, and, Wait a and make certain instruments come out more from Wait the background. Yeah. You're saying that a piece of furniture is supposedly going to make my hi-fi sound better? A piece of furniture? Yeah, I'll have a link in the show notes to an article um, that I linked to from my website. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to work. I get speaker stands. You know, I get you have yeah. to isolate the vibration and change the reflection and things like that. But the rack? The furniture. Yeah. I mean, what is it? Is it pyramid shaped or something? I mean, well, it improves the sound stage, apparently. Oh, does it? Um, yeah. I, is that a I, thing? I do agree with speaker stands. Sound stage is not a thing. It doesn't exist. <laughs> well, the sound stage does exist, but not to the extent that some people describe it. Um, I use speaker stands on my desk. So I've written many times on my website about this. I don't use computer speakers. I have a stereo that's over to my right, and then I have two focal cores bookshelf speakers on my desk. And if I were to put them flat on the desk, first of all, they'd be too low. Here's an important thing to think of when you're positioning speakers. You want the tweeters to be about the level of your ears because the high frequency waves are very small. So not only would they not be in an optimal location, but they'd be on the desk and they'd resonate more. So these speaker stands isolate the speakers from the desk and I can hear the difference in the sound. There's not that muddy bass that you get when it's on the desk. 
Yeah, it's because the desk is acting like an extension of the speaker cabinet, and if the designers of the speakers wanted a massive plate of wood or glass fixed to the bottom of the speakers, they would have put it there. But, you know, you go into, you go into a recording studio and you look at how they've installed the speakers. They put the speakers on whatever will put them at the right level, and then they put a lump of foam underneath them, and that is all you need. Yeah. Most studios I've worked in have taken these big studio monitors and suspended them by chains from the ceiling. That completely isolates them. There. Yeah, and that'll work totally well. Right. Okay, let's discuss digital files next. Digital files are obviously the object of much discussion. What about compression? How important is compression really? The different file formats, the different levels of compression? Well, compression is extremely important if you want all of your files to fit on a small device or if you want your battery to last very long. Because uncompressed files represent extremely inefficient storage in an totally uncompressed lossless file the silence is taking up as much space as loud and complex music and that just doesn't make sense it's not necessary and so you have lossless compression which at the expense of some processing time and power consumption will will shrink the files you also have lossy compression which at the expense of things you almost certainly cannot hear the files are made much, 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 much smaller. So lossless compression is formats like FLAC and Apple lossless. Lossy compression is formats like MP3 and AAC. That's right. And the high bitrate lossy compression algorithms are designed to be completely transparent. They're tested to be completely transparent. And so you shouldn't be able to tell the difference. And frankly, as a consumer, you should want not to be able to tell the difference because the upside of being able to tell the difference is, hooray, good for you, you have magical bat ears. And the upside of not being able to tell the difference is that the battery in your phone will last twice as long when you're listening to music. And so I really think this is, this is worth testing. This is worth a proper blind test at home. Okay, what about, and, and here's an interesting idea that I've read on forums and websites, the fact that some lossless or uncompressed file formats may sound better than others. Um, just to remind people, I mentioned FLAC and Apple lossless. These are lossless formats. AFE and WAVE, these are the formats of uncompressed music that's copied off a CD. There are some people that say that a WAVE or an AFE file sounds better than a FLAC or an Apple lossless file. This sounds a bit incredible. If there actually is a detectable difference between two lossless formats played back on somebody's computer, then there's something wrong with their computer. What about Mastered for iTunes? This is something that Apple came out with a few years ago, which was supposed to provide better quality sound for the files that Apple sells on the iTunes store. Um, these are AAC files at 256 kilobits per second. What exactly is Mastered for iTunes, and does it really make a difference? Okay, so there are two big differences between Mastered for iTunes and the standard iTunes Plus. And these are firstly that Mastered for iTunes is encoded from a high-resolution master. So instead of the 16-bit, 44 kilohertz master, they've, they've taken something that is 24-bit, uh, they've taken something that is higher than 44.1 kilohertz. And the other difference is that they have checked to ensure that when it is decoded, and they, they from, the, from the formula that they've created to reconstruct the sound, they are not going to create a waveform which will clip, which is a risk when you take music which has been mastered very, very loud and you run it through the AAC encoding and decoding algorithm. You can end up accidentally creating a kind of crunchiness on the loud bits. So clipping is when something is too loud that the playback can't play all the volume and it sort of distorts at the high end. 
That's right. So if you if you think about uh, the the waveform as a as a wiggly line, when it gets to the upper limit, it, you have a kind of sharp corner there, and that that produces a sort of crunching sound when you're playing it back, and it's not it's not a pleasant sound. The slightly daft thing about this is that AAC could always have automatically prevented this. The way that before mastered for iTunes, and indeed if your record isn't mastered for iTunes, you have to deliver the lossless audio to Apple anyway, and they could very simply turn everything down a little bit before they encode it, and that would that would prevent this this problem. So I do think it's kind of it's kind of BS to wrap that up in Master for iTunes and treat it like it's a, a feature when in fact it is the, the emission of a fairly serious bug. Um, as for encoding from a high resolution master, there is a plausible argument for doing this. When you reduce something from 24-bit to 16-bit, there is this process called dithering, which adds a small amount of noise to the to the signal, which affects the efficiency of the encoding. And, and if you don't have to do that step, when you're when you're converting it into AAC, then you do end up with a, a more efficient encode and you get more of the music you want and less of the noise you don't want. The way I like to explain it is that this is all numbers, this is all digital, and that the higher numbers you start with, the fewer rounding errors you get as you shrink it. So the more room you have at the top, the smoother everything's going to be when it's compressed. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think that, that, that kind of makes sense. Um, the thing about Master for iTunes is it's kind of... 50% good audio science and 50% marketing BS. And frankly, they've not supported this well either in the store in terms of the, the mechanisms of the iTunes store, and they haven't supported it very well from a marketing standpoint. So it's not well understood that it's it's better. And there are a lot of Master for iTunes recordings that are not tagged as Master for iTunes in, in the store. So it's kind of a missed opportunity for them on a number of levels. The music we listen to is probably a lot more affected by the rooms that we're in than it is by the cables between our amps and speakers. Why don't more people take into account their rooms and the effect that has on their audio and rather than worrying about their speaker cables? I think that's a good question. Uh, there's certainly a much bigger difference in sound caused by living rooms than caused by the difference between high-end audio components. and. High-end audio components in most rooms are going to sound exactly the same because they're all aiming for the same totally transparent reproduction. But rooms are going to add reflected sound. They're going to add this whole layer of acoustic on top of the acoustics of the room in which the music was recorded. Uh, and when you look at, when you look at the, the websites, the catalogues of these high-end audio manufacturers, you see these systems installed in rooms where they would sound absolutely appalling. You know, Bang & Olufsen's website has this picture of a, a, this polished concrete living room. And it's going to have the acoustics of somewhere between a, a, a bathroom and an underground car park. Isn't, is that the one where they have like a big plate glass window on one side as well? Yeah, right. And, and you, you see this, you see the speakers put in the wrong places so that chairs closer to one than to the other. And of course, these are the ways that people, people live around their hi-fi gear in, in real life. But if what you want is for it to sound really good, a lot of these high-end stereos cost more than the price of a, a house with an extra room in it. You know, if, if you want your music to sound really, really good, 
once you've got to the kind of £5,000 mark, it, it makes more sense to spend the next 100, 200, 500 pounds on trying to improve the acoustics of the room, trying to reduce the quantity of direct reflection, trying to prevent standing waves from building up in the in the room, than, than it does to spend any more money on cables and CD players and, and amplifiers. Because outside of a room with controlled acoustics, all of these systems are going to sound the same. Well, how do you do that, though? Is there any way that an average listener... I mean, I know you can buy certain things, but how do you measure this? Well, there are a few simple principles that you can follow to improve the way that your stereo is going to sound. You want the speakers and the listener arranged in roughly an equilateral triangle. So the distance between you and each speaker is about the same as the distance between the speakers. You want the tweeters on the speakers about the same level as your ears, as you mentioned before. You want to have ideally some space around the speakers and some space behind you and to not have hard reflective surfaces in the room and some people will cover their walls in in foam you see this in in home cinemas it's probably about the only place people do this at, at home uh, they'll put soft wall coverings up but in place of a soft wall covering you might try shelves full of books particularly behind you um, shelves full of books will by not being complete a flat surface they will absorb some of the sound and they will scatter the rest of the sound so that you don't get direct reflections if if you can put something soft on the floor if you can think of a way to do it put something soft on the ceiling close heavy curtains over the windows and your room will sound much much better so what, what we've been talking about here is everything that has nothing to do with the music, at least not directly. It's about the reproduction of the music. Do you feel that there's a disconnect between people who are really hi-fi fanatics and people who are music lovers? I mean, I think that in some ways, these two groups of people are talking about entirely different things, and they find it difficult to understand each other and find common ground. Well, let me tell you a boring story. A few years ago, I was given a Super Audio CD player by the head of a audiophile label and I took this home and thought great now I can try out some of these surround recordings and I had a look at this piece of kit and I realized that first up I have to go out and buy a whole load more speakers so I bought a whole load more speakers I wired them all up and uh, I managed to to tune it so that I could get a kind of plausible surround image in one chair that was positioned inconveniently in the middle of the room and, and then I went to look at what music I could listen to. And I went through the, the box of SACDs this label head had sent me and I looked on my, on my shelves. And what I realized was that I could either have a very high quality surround sound recording, most of which were made in fairly bad rooms. So they, they perfectly reproduced a, a less than perfect experience. Or I could listen to an ordinary stereo recording of a much better performance of that, that music. And this for me, although, although I've, I have run an SACD label, which I think made musically brilliant recordings, which were also available in surround sound, I think for the most part, this is a, a problem with audiophile re recordings in general. And I do feel as if people who are primarily enthusiastic about sound reproduction rather than performance have at best understood the how but not the why of 
all of this. And, and often, if you look at the things they buy and the way those things are sold, clearly a lot of them don't even really understand the how. So something I've always wondered about with audio equipment is whether you need to break it in. And you read a lot about this. Now, I can understand you may want to do this for speakers and headphones because there are actual moving parts that, that loosen up when, when there's music, you know, the, the membranes that vibrate and all that. But do you need to break in an amplifier, a CD player, a DAC, a cable? Well, let's think about this for a minute. It's, it's not the case for any other precision-engineered electronic apparatus. And so I think we should be extremely suspicious of these, these claims. Professional audio equipment is never sold this way. And so it makes me wonder if this, if this is some kind of rhetorical BS. Like they're telling you that this might sound bad now, but trust me, it'll sound better later on. And given that this could be a piece of fairly serious sales BS, we should expect a plausible explanation of the mechanism and a plausible explanation of why it is necessary for this piece of equipment to not work straight away. And when we're looking at whether or not this plausible explanation of necessity is really plausible, we should consider that nothing NASA makes requires breaking in. <laughs> that you can, you can go out for the same price as a really high-end amplifier. You can buy an electron microscope or you can buy a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. And both of these things will work perfectly the second you plug them in. And so, so why the hell should my £50,000 amplifier require leaving on for 100 hours before it sounds right? That's just, that's just absurd. I paid you £50,000 for it. Make it work right away. <laughs> and on that oh, note... that was fun. Thank you. On that note, we've got to wrap it up. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Thanks for having me on the show. Andy Doe is a digital audio consultant, and my guess is a much more frequent guest on the show. Thanks, guys. All right, as we sign off, we want to tell you about our next tracks. Kirk, what will you be listening to? This week, I've been listening to a two-CD set of music that I haven't listened to in years. It's a recording of Bach's Lute Works by Stefan Schmidt on a 10-string guitar. Now, I used to play guitar when I was younger, and I loved these lute pieces. Just as an aside, they weren't originally composed for lute. Um, they were composed for keyboard instruments. But they're often played on lute or, or transposed for guitar. I just love this music. It's just, you know, if you hear some of Bach's keyboard suites, they have this this kind of, they have this musical narrative that tells a story. And, and hearing this on a plucked instrument, uh, in this case, a 10-string guitar, it's just beautiful. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to link to this on Amazon, but it's been out of print for a while. Um, it's on the Naive label. It's a French record label. There are other recordings of Bach's lute works. Uh, played on lute, played on six-string guitar, etc. But I really like the sound of the ten-string guitar because you get more of a resonance at the low end. A ten-string guitar has additional strings at the low end, not on the high end. And these act more as sympathetic strings that resonate when you're playing music. So this gives it a rich, a full, rich sound, more than you get with a six-string guitar. A lot similar to what you'd get from a lute or a theorbo. So it's Box Complete Lute Works on ten-string guitar by Stefan Schmidt. You know, we don't check with each other beforehand, so I had no idea that you'd be waxing nostalgic. It's a beautiful summer day here, which reminds me of a similar summer during my youth, which I discovered the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's Out. This is the live recording the Stones made at Madison Square Garden on the Thanksgiving after the uh, Altamont Festival fiasco. 
This is one of the, at least to me, one of the penultimate rock and roll live albums. It's got a really rockin' versions of their basic set. It's got two Chuck Berry songs featuring Ian Stewart on Boogie Woogie Piano, uh, a classic performance of Midnight Rambler. I'm going to be playing it loud. It's the Rolling Stones. Get your yayas out. My next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>